I'd like to begin this evening's talk with three words, three Pali words, which are Pali being the language that the Buddha taught in. It was the one of the spiritual languages at that time. It wasn't a daily life spoken language. And the three words are sila, samatha or samadhi, and panya. And they translate into English as virtue or ethics, ethical behavior, that's sila. Samadhi or samatha as concentration. And panya as wisdom or insight. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these three particular aspects of mind. These three particular aspects of mind, he said, being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and insight, or wisdom. These three form the three branches of mental development that are essential for all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities, or these capacities of heart, of mind, are what lead one into vipassana, or the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. The insight of anicca, or impermanency, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena. The insight of dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly, mental, and physical occurrences. And the insight of impersonality, the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. Anatta. These are the three profound insights that lead one on toward liberation. In the Buddha's words, and as he very often did in his teaching, he starts with a question. And then he himself goes on to answer the question. And here's his question. If concentration, samadhi or samatha, is developed, what profit does it bring? And he goes on to answer, the mind is developed. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he goes on to answer, all lust is abandoned. And he continues, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And he says, wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his own question, all ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samatha or samadhi, concentration meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation. In particular, alternating sequences are developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes 
comes about through the practice, through the process, and through the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, our exploration of virtue, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of sila deepen, and as they mature within us, as we come to understand through our own very direct experience, we come to understand what brings happiness, what brings contentment and ease on the very deepest levels, and what brings suffering, what brings confusion, what brings dis-ease. Very intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us are our habits, our habits of attraction, our habits of aversion, our habits of resistance, worry, anxiety, fear, and the identification with these habitual states of mind. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in the very right here and now momentary round of worldly suffering. And the Pali word for this is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration, samatha or samadhi. And these habits keep us from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keep us from awakening, keep us from enlightenment. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Toronto, Mexico, IMS, Italy, snow, New York, Maine, the Amtrak train system, etc., etc., etc. That all of this is understood, all of this is regarded as being without substantial sustaining essence, being without any separate, solid self identity. In order to see, to clearly see and know the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness. We need to part the veil, to untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya. In speaking to Ananda, Ananda was one of the Buddha's chief disciples. In speaking to Ananda in the Kimata Sutta, and all of these suttas are stories and teachings from the Buddha, the Buddha again, he again asks, a question, and again proceeds to answer it. He says, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And here's his response. He says, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose. Freedom from remorse as their reward, Ananda. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. 
Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. In this way, Ananda, says the Buddha, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arahantship, arahantship being uh, the fourth stage of enlightenment, a being who is really, truly free of suffering. And in speaking to his nuns and his monks directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom or insight that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, we need, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience, and often from some of our most difficult experiences, or what we might deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, maybe beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that purification is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samadhi, the active force of concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions, and then learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present, so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up, isn't being usurped in some unconscious and unskillful way. The Vesudhimagga, which is a profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, this book, huge book, uses a number of very uh, graphic metaphors to describe the process and the act of concentration. And I'd like to share a couple of these metaphors with you. And this is the first one. The bee follows up the scent of a flower, then dives towards the flower, stops, and buzzes above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, absorbing into it. So a metaphor for what we call preliminary access and absorption concentration, which I'll talk about a little bit more later on in the evening. Another metaphor that's offered in the Visuddhimagga that I particularly relate to because of my own experience 
in making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a very strong and very relaxed focus of attention of body and mind. Staying, sustaining attention, sustaining energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continued focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay with that hand, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which is the object of attention. But this other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration. With the mind, with the heart, moving into the deeper states of samadhi in this metaphor, the jhana state. The power of a clear, relaxed, focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its own ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, and calm, quite an energizing and refreshing and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the beautiful and purifying current of samadhi, of concentration, I think it uh, would be helpful for us to explore and to learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration Calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, and peace, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. These wholesome states can't grow, can't develop and grow when the unwholesome states of mind of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the breath, and you're anxious or you're worried during the process, it will prevent you from being calm and joyful. Worry enslaves us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, so to say even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. And it's not about 
kicking thoughts out. It's not about aversion to thought. As I said this morning in one of the groups, we're fortunate we can think. It's one of the things that human beings can do. But it has its place, we could say. Clarity of intention and seeing, knowing when the attention gets muddled, when the attention gets lost in something other than what is intended, is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of this practice. As you know, the mind can get lost over and over again, in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, and thinking that whatever it is is really, really important right this minute. During a three-month concentration retreat, jhana retreat, that I was sitting with my teacher, Pawak Sayadaw, I had um, Uh, uh, such an experience as this that I'd like to share with you. For the first week or so of the retreat, each day after lunch I would um, make myself a a fancy cup of tea. I would take two or three different loose teas and mix them together in a tea ball and um, make myself this fancy cup of tea. An important and seemingly very necessary treat that I needed, seemingly, that I wanted. So after about a a week of doing this, I noticed that there was a box of tea bags um, of one of the same kinds of tea that I was putting into my fancy mix. And this box of tea bags was sitting right in front of me on the counter underneath the jars of loose tea. And it had been sitting there every day, but I had never noticed it. I hadn't paid any attention to it up until that moment. So the thought came, do you really need this, talking to myself? Do you really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? Well, again, talking to myself, the answer came no. No, it's, it's not important at all. It's just merely habitual distraction. And so I made that day, I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag, and I enjoyed it. It was enough, good enough. What happened after this was what was really important. Quite spontaneously, At times throughout the rest of the three-month retreat, this jhana uh, concentration retreat I was involved in, this question would come up. Is this really important? It would come up in relationship to various mundane actions, as mundane as making a cup of tea. It would come up in relationship to various thoughts. It would come up in relationship to various thought patterns. And the answer, almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, the answer came, no. No, this isn't important. And I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of A wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration, is that the heart and the mind are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, 
lethargy, restlessness, doubt. Classically, the development of concentration and jhana is described as the purification of the mind. Samatha or samadhi or the development of calm and concentration seriously weakens all of the hindrances, seriously weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, bliss, peace, equanimity, the, these fruits of concentration, when they're clearly manifest, these qualities, the hindrances, the unwholesome mind states are temporarily completely eliminated as well as profoundly weakened in the long term, particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens, and even more specifically so if one has the inclination towards the deeper states of concentration, the jhana states. So now taking a bit of a look at the different factors of deep concentration and how they quite specifically address different states of mind, different states of body that hinder the development of practice, that hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, and quite obviously, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, of aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object. And the word, the Pali word for this process is called vitaka. Aiming, applying, and establishing the mind on the object, such as the breath, as we're doing here. This eliminates dullness, sleepiness, stiffness, the sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustaining attention on the object. And again, in the case of our practice here, the breath. And the word for this in Pali is called vichara. This sustained application of attention on the object eliminates uncertainty. It eliminates doubt. the deeply concentrated state of joyful zest, a bright happiness, a kind of elation in the mind, resulting from the purity of the heart, the purity of the mind. And the word for this experience is piti in Pali. This brings a very delighted interest in and liking of the object of attention, again, as the breath our object of attention. With the development of a deepening concentration, there's this joyful zest, liking, delight in the connection and the experience of breath. Or with the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration, There's much delight, much liking and delight of the object of attention, which in this case is the direct experience of the jhana itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are completely inhibited. 
and going on the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, a sweet, easeful happiness. And the word for this in Pali is sukha. And this is not a pleasant bodily feeling, but rather a blissful, contented mental feeling. And it occurs to varying degrees with a deepening concentration, which some of you may have already experienced to some degree. And then much more profoundly, it occurs in the third jhana, which then completely, temporarily eliminates restlessness, eliminates agitation, eliminates regret and worry. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of one-pointed focus, the one-pointed focus of a deep concentration, and the Pali word for this is ikagata. Again, this occurs in varying degrees throughout the development and the deepening of concentration. And then it happens in a much more profound and sustaining way during the absorption in the fourth jhana. It's the experience of an absolute centeredness, balance, equanimity. And it eliminates, at that point, sensuous desire for anything. As concentration practice develops and moves along, and the imperfections, the states that corrupt the natural purity of the mind, the natural purity of the heart, as the practice moves along, and when at least some of the imperfections have been clearly let go, abandoned, relinquished, At that time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and much deeper confidence, a confidence in and connection with one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience a great inspiration, a great enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha, connected to the Dhamma and connected to the Sangha, and also often connected to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience, to know ourself as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them. There's a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude that's born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, there's a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture. And with this joy, and the knowing of it, without any attachment, without any personal identification in relationship to it, the body and mind eventually become quite tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, these are removed. They disappear in the calm. They disappear in the quiet. They disappear in the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, without any identification, in relationship to the experience in those moments, 
then the mind is prepared for deepened concentration. And on it goes. At this point, the mind, the heart, is very strong. The nature of concentration is threefold. In other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and serve our insight practice. And I mentioned these earlier in the talk. The first of these is what's called momentary concentration. And this is the development and growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type of concentration, or the second level of concentration, is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into the absorption, or jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and the depth of jhana concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at at the exclusion of other objects, as does the jhana. With excess concentration, the mind is malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object. Even though it contains close to the same intensity and of deeply absorbed states of jhana. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very, very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight. The third type, or the third level of concentration, is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, during that time, the mind is temporarily totally purified of all unwholesome mind states, while at the same time, unwholesome states of mind and body are profoundly weakened in the long run, though they're not totally and completely eliminated. It's only through vipassana, it's only through insight practice that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, as as some of you know particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, less identification. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and very concerted effort that's not necessarily everyone's inclination or everyone's interest. 
And it's also not absolutely necessary for a profound and potentially liberating insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet, to wholeheartedly absorb into experience with no self, no no me, no I am, just the experience itself being experienced wholeheartedly, while at the same time being very clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place but with no pondering, no thinking about what's occurring. In light of this, I'd like to uh, share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices, and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart, they weren't bringing the liberation of mind that he was seeking. It's said that the bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, bodhisattva means, bodhi means uh, being, or bodhi means awakening, uh, enlightenment, and sata is a being. So a bodhisattva is a being intent on awakening, or a being intent on enlightenment. And that's what Siddhartha Gautama was. What Siddhartha Gautama was before he became the Buddha. So it's said that after he engaged in these extreme ascetic practices and find, found that they weren't bringing him the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, he asked himself, "Could there be another path to awakening? Could there be another path to enlightenment?" In in reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood, appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community rich and poor alike, came together. They came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and quite naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly sitting under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene that was unfolding before him with a very open, alert, unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things, nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or not fearing anything, He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured the swarming insects 
and the grubs, worms, and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and very deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him, and in his heart finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. As he silently sat quite still, secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing experiencing a very bright, sweet pleasure and happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body and then remembering this boyhood experience, (coughs) the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and assuredness that this, in fact, was the path to liberation. And so he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he really reached full understanding, (coughs) until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha-to-be in his quest for awakening in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his evaluation of pleasure in that it was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, that all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, let go of, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or kind of living through them, or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships, or by struggling hard, trying really, really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices, or by trying to lose one's self in physical and mental self-created hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even tiny ways, or possibly in some extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, 
been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, situations, activities, relationships that created hardship or a certain flavor of austerity in your life, and maybe even extreme hardship and austerity, in your own way doing just what the Buddha did, and thinking just as he did that this would somehow bring a sustaining joy, a sustaining happiness and ease into your life. So considering your own life in light of this. Potentially a certain kind of strength might be gained, but the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of awakening, can really never be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his uh, childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, a heart that's secluded, free from mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, of restlessness, greed, clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated pleasure, presence, that when pleasure is born of detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's valuable and a necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion and that it, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness and the sustaining ease of a heart, of a mind, that's liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisatta had the insight that deep concentration was a step on the way to enlightenment a step on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed in the Majjhima Nikaya, in his greater discourse to Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure, since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that after he stopped engaging in extreme austere practices and then started eating some solid food and regained his strength and was secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he tells Sakaka that he entered into the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. And that with with each of these pleasurable abidings, as he explained to Sakaka, he said, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. And the Buddha goes on in this sutta, talking to Sakaka and telling him, When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he said, 
I systematically attained each of the liberating insights, each of the liberating knowledges, one by one by one. And he did this through that now very famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside uh, going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind that's made up, often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be or how it isn't supposed to be, what's good and what's bad, what we absolutely definitely know is true or isn't true. And we so often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice. A mind made up, a mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment that we're in, keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off to the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering. And what prevents the heart, what prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned earlier this evening, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and the practice of virtue, ethics, the current of samadhi or samatha, the teaching and the practice of concentration, and the current of vipassana, the teaching and the practice of insight, of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life that carry us to the other side, to the side of peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart, an undisturbed mind. The current of samadhi, the development of concentration, including the states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, are beautiful, potentially healing and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used toward our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, 
so that we recognize the true nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of this sleepy cloud of delusion. And so, as awakening beings, here we are this evening, more than 2,500 years later, after the story that I've just shared took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama, thanks to his diligent and powerful, very powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and, and the inspired and amazing clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within the practice with a deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the basic roots and basic forces of purity that the fruits of practice stem from. I'd like to uh, close the talk with a poem by Mary Oliver that uh, speaks to this evening's topic in her uh, quite unique and uh, beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's uh, topic, in a somewhat oblique way, (laughs) and yet uh, quite a moving way. And she calls this uh, poem such singing in the wild branches. It was spring, and I finally heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade, with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure. But it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. It's spring. Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your soul need comforting? Then quick, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit together for just a couple of moments. <clears throat> 